You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to the second chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 12, verse 2. Excuse me, Luke chapter 2, verse 12. A little dyslexic there for a minute. Luke chapter 2, verse 12. Comedian Dave Barry has suggested that if you analyze carefully the story of the wise men coming to see Jesus, there is often an overlooked theological fact in that story. And that fact is there is absolutely no mention of wrapping paper. Do you know why? First, they were wise. Secondly, they were men. I'm not a good rapper. That was not a skill I developed or inherited or any other way. Since I know that fact about myself, I usually buy Edna's Christmas presents. They're in hidden away. When Danielle gets here for Christmas, she'll wrap them. So that's how that works. According to one report I read, Americans use an estimated 8,000 tons of wrapping paper each Christmas. That equals about $2.6 billion annually in the sale of Christmas wrapping paper. 50% of all paper consumed in the United States is used for wrapping gifts and for decorating. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get the feeling we're like the folks who decided to throw a party for a very special friend. They sent out invitations, they decorated the hall, they had all the food catered, And all the people came together at the designated time, but to their surprise, the guest of honor was not there. Finally, it dawned on them that in all of their preparation, they forgot to invite him. I sometimes think that's what has happened to us at Christmas. We go through all the decorating and we go through all the present buying and preparation and all the elaborate meals and all that, somehow uh, we seem to forget what it really is we're celebrating. At Christmas, I think about the greatest gift ever given. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christmas is one of those hard times for pastors to preach because it's the same story year after year. That, that one doesn't change and there's not much you can uh, do, you know, I try to avoid you walking out on Sunday morning saying, you preached that last year. Um, so I try, to, I try to come up with a different way of looking at things. And I find that when I read the scripture anyway, I, I usually find things that I have not seen before. And this year, when I started looking at the Christmas story, it seems no matter how many times I read it, uh, I find something new and I found something new in this one verse that I wanna share with you today. And I want you to notice that the first Christmas present was wrapped. You see how I made that connection between the wrapping paper and, I mean, that's why I get paid the big bucks. Um, Stand in honor and reverence the reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word as we look at verse number 12. The angels are speaking to the shepherds and they say, 
and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Father, would you please now speak through your spirit and your word and your servant that we may begin to understand what the true meaning of Christmas really is. In Jesus' name, amen. the average person reads the Christmas story, they are likely to be unimpressed. There's nothing in this story that a person would consider great. I heard someone say one time, God is great in great things, but he is very great in little things. I'm concerned that with all of the annual repetitions and with all the familiarity of the story, we somehow take the greatness of this wrapped gift for granted. And so I want to give you three statements this morning that'll help you, I hope, I'll encourage you during this Christmas season, but it'll help you as you look at this verse, maybe in a different way than you've ever looked at it before. Here's the first thing. This wrapped gift was a miracle. Now, we tend to use that word miracle flippantly. Everything's a miracle. I lost my car keys and I found them just before it was too late. And that was a miracle. That's not a miracle. Um, the things that we attribute to miracle status Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100 are not miracles at all. A miracle is a very specific thing. It is a very specific act of God. This is a miracle. Have you ever considered the fact that when God came into this world, he came as a little baby? Can you even imagine that? Can you even imagine that the God of the universe the God who created everything that there is was born in a manger. You know, if God created Adam as a full-grown man, and he did, then he could have done the same thing with Jesus. Wouldn't that have been more dramatic? Wouldn't that have been more remarkable? Wouldn't that have been more appropriate? But instead, the Bible says, God incarnate is born of a woman wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, or more specifically, the, the translation should say that he is wrapped snugly in cloth lying in a feeding trough. I read one time that there have been 57, at least 57 plus billion people who have lived on earth from the beginning of time. 57 plus billion people have lived on this planet since the beginning of time. All but two, all but two were born as babies. Adam and Eve were not. They were created by God. They were not born. But of all the 57 plus billion babies that have been born, none of them had a birth like this. None of them had a birth like Jesus. This is a miracle birth. Go back to the very first verse of chapter two in Luke and look at what it says. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
That seems simple enough. Everybody has to go back to the town, the city of their father. Everybody has to go back to their uh, place where their uh, relatives were born. Common thing. This happened often to register people. It's a census. We do it every 10 years here in the United States. There's nothing uh, that dramatic about that particular verse except for one thing. In that verse, behind that census is the plan of God. Hundreds of years before Caesar Augustus had ever been thought of, Hundreds of years before, the prophet Micah had said this, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel from, for me, and his origin is from everlasting to everlasting or from antiquity to eternity, from beginning of time to ending of time. When you meet Mary and Joseph, where are they? They're in Nazareth. That ain't Bethlehem. And if you've ever been pregnant, I haven't. I live in a world today where you have to say that. Nor will I ever be. But if you've ever been pregnant, you reach a certain point in that journey where if anybody suggests that you take a trip much longer than about a mile and a half, you get a little disgusted and you're not interested. Can you imagine Joseph coming in and saying, Mary, uh, we got to make this 80-mile trip from where we are to Bethlehem because Caesar has said we need to go. And she's nine months pregnant but God's purposes and God's promises are always true and God's promises are always fulfilled. Warren Wearsby about this passage said, Augustus Caesar was ruling, but God was in charge because he used Caesar's edict to move Mary and Joseph 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem for one purpose, to fulfill his word. He said Jesus was going to be born, not in Nazareth, in Bethlehem. You ever sit around and play the what if game? What if thus and so had happened? What if uh, you and I had never met? Well, there are no what ifs with God. He's in charge. And every single promise that he has ever made is absolutely dependable and is going to take place. It is not a matter of if God's promises are going to be fulfilled. It's a matter of when God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Look at verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in, a, in the inn. Now, now, just use your sanctified imagination for a minute. Go back with me to that night. At just the right time, well, go back even farther, just the right time in history, God had sent the angel Gabriel to Mary and had said to her, Mary, you're going to have a baby. 
But Mary, this is not just any baby. You're going to have the baby who is going to grow up to save the people from their sins. That had also been predicted. We read it earlier in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 500 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah said a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel. That is amazing. Absolutely amazing. You remember Larry King? Larry King was a talk show host on CNN for many, many years. He was once asked... If you could interview anybody who has ever lived in history, who would you want to interview? He, Larry King was known for probing questions and great interviews, and he said, I'd like to interview Jesus Christ. That's an interesting choice. And so the person talking to King said, if you could interview Jesus Christ, what is the one question that you would want to ask him? He said, there's not... Uh, not even a second uh, close uh, response to this. There's one question I want to know the answer to. I want to ask him, is it true that you were born of a virgin? Because the answer to that question changes everything in the world. I want to know the answer to this. Is it true that you were born of a virgin? Because that answer defines history. This is not an ordinary baby. This is the redeemer and ruler. He's the son of the highest. He's the savior of the lowest. He that existed from eternity past is the same one who will rule in eternity future. He is both great and glorious. It's a miracle. This wrapped baby is a miracle birth. Someone wrote this. Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, but Jesus taught for only three. Yet those three years infinitely transcend in influence and combined 130 years of teaching of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, three of the greatest men of antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures. Yet the paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets have been inspired by him. Jesus composed no music. Still, Haydn, Handel, Beethoven, Bach, Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in him, symphonies written in his praise. Thus, every sphere of human greatness has been incomparably enriched by the humble carpenter of Nazareth. That is what we celebrate the birth of the Savior. You would certainly have to agree with me then that this indeed is a miracle birth. Here's the second thing I want you to see out of that verse, though. This wrapped baby not only was a miracle, this wrapped baby was marked. Marked, M-A-R-K-E-D. Hold on a minute, Pastor. What do you mean by that? Well, when the Bible says something, I figure it's important. And if it wasn't important, the Bible wouldn't have mentioned it. So when you read in verse 12, the shepherds were told the sign. The sign is going to be a baby wrapped 
snugly in cloth. <laughs> well, wouldn't that be the case of every baby? I've, I've, I've visited in hospitals and visited in homes of newborns, and I've yet to walk into a home of a brand newborn baby where he's just laying out on a table naked. Every one I've ever seen has been wrapped. I don't know, there must be something else to this because the Bible makes a great deal out of the idea that Jesus was wrapped in cloth. Let's examine that a minute. William Vines in the Expository Dictionary of Old Testament and New Testament words says that the word sign means a mark or an indication which is used to distinguish a person or thing from anything else. All right, that helps. So what makes this wrapping a sign? This is a sign that marks Jesus, marks this baby being wrapped in cloth, is a sign that marks him as being different from all the others. The shepherds are told that they will find the baby lying in a manger. We have romanticized this to the point that we don't even understand what that means anymore. It was not a, a, a trough like you and I would see made out of wood and all nice and fresh, clean hay and that kind. It was a rock. It was a rock. Just a rock about this big and this wide and it's hewn out sort of in the middle. And that's what they laid him in. It's a feeding trough. Son of God was not going to be found in the warmth and splendor of a palace. Son of God was not going to be found in a cradle in a royal nursery. He was in a feeding trough in a stable where animals were kept. I want you to write this down. That is a sign of humility. That's a sign of humility. Listen to how John Phillips describes this scene. So in a rough, cold cave attached to an ancient inn, the Son of God entered into human life. Oxen shook their shaggy heads. Camels looked around with disdain. The floor was unspeakably foul. Bats flew in and out. There was no hot water. There was no sanitation. There was no midwife who was available, but in the nearby inn, paying customers were calling for food and drink and singing songs and seeking their beds. We have romanticized this story so much that I think we fail to realize just how poor Mary and Joseph were, just how poor the conditions were into which Jesus was born. And yet, as I think those conditions were only reflective of the world that he was born into. He had come to a world that is defiled by sin. He has come from the heights of deity to enter into the depths of humanity. He came from heaven's adoration to earth's abomination. He came from heaven's glory place to earth's gory place. He came from the hallelujah of heaven to the hate of earth. That is a scene of humility. 
and being wrapped in cloth and lying, lying in a feeding trough, that illustrates that humility. Shepherds were told that finding a babe wrapped in cloth and lying in a feeding trough would be the sign. It would be the mark. It would be the indication that this was the one for whom they had been looking. Prophets, priests, patriarchs had talked about that for hundreds of years. Now he's here, savior of the world. He'd come for all people. But I want you to understand the shepherds are the last folks you would have expected to get the news. Shepherds were outcasts. Shepherds were nomadic. They were constantly on the move. They're trying to find pastures so that their sheep uh, could graze. And so shepherds were very often looked upon with suspicion. They were often accused of being thieves. If anything went missing, the first people you blamed were those stinky shepherds out there. It was illegal for a shepherd to testify in court because nobody would believe what they had to say. Their testimony was not considered uh, trustworthy. Being a shepherd was a lonely, wearisome, usually very boring, tedious existence. I doubt you would have been able to find a father who would have said, I sure hope my daughter marries a shepherd. And yet the shepherds, yet the shepherds are the ones who are told that finding Christ in a wrapped cloth, in a feeding trough, is going to be their sign. Reminds me that sinners, no matter who they are, Jesus came to save all sinners, even shepherds. It says to me that no matter where you live, no matter what you've gone through in life, no matter how poor you are, how rich you are, no matter if you have this world's goods or you don't have any of the world's goods, that Jesus came to save you. The worst of the worst were the shepherds. And yet Jesus' birth is told to them. If a shepherd can be saved, you can be saved. I can be saved. Miracle of a wrapped baby. The mark of this wrapped baby. One more thing I want you to see and we'll go. This wrapped baby had a message. He had a message. Why does the Bible make such a distinction about his clothes, Pastor? Well, I told you earlier that the word sign means mark, means indication, but there's a deeper meaning to that word. In Greek, the word sign means a visible event intended to convey meaning beyond that which is ordinarily perceived in the outward appearance. In other words, you look at it and you see one thing, but there's more to it than what you see. And that's what this is. So when the angels say to the shepherds, and this will be a sign to you, you'll find a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a feeding trough, 
This sign that is given to them is given to them to convey the meaning. When you see this, understand there's more to it than what you think. There's something else going on here. This is not just a sign to indicate this is the Christ child. This is a sign to indicate that there must be some kind of special message that God is sending to us through this child, a special truth that everybody needs to hear about. When the Bible talks about uh, the baby being wrapped uh, in swaddling clothes or wrapped snugly in cloth, it is a picture of the way you might wind a sheep to wrap the body of somebody who was dead. In other words, Mary didn't have any cute little onesies to put on her baby. She didn't have a little pretty blue outfit. Nobody threw Mary a baby shower. Uh, Maybe some of you in this room, I think some of you, have been uh, blessed and fortunate enough to have maybe one of the uh, blankets that Edna has made through the years for uh, babies that have been born. She didn't have any of that. All she had was a death shroud. She wrapped him the way that you would wrap a body to prepare it for a funeral. You see it? You see the message? Jesus came into this world and the way he came into this world indicated that he had come for one purpose. He came to die. I've never gone to visit a couple who just had a new baby and you never would say to a couple, wonder when he's gonna die. Oh, why would you say that about a newborn? You wouldn't, why? Because when you see that newborn, what you normally think is they've got their whole life in front of them. This child, all of us, every one of us were born to live but not Jesus. Jesus was born to die. From the moment he entered this earth in in the form of a human being, he was making his way headlong to Calvary's cross. And so it's a nice story that we tell at Christmas and we make it all romanticized and it's snow falling and silent night and and lights and trees and presents and all those wonderful things and yet it was nothing like that. Mary wrapped him in all she had and that was a death shroud. The Lord Jesus took upon himself a human body that he might die for the human race. He was a miracle worker. But performing miracles is not the reason he came here. He was a great teacher. There's a whole slew of folks today who, who say, we just need to pay attention to the red letters of the Bible and listen to the teaching of Jesus and then you'll, you'll understand. No, 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 no. He was a great teacher, but Jesus didn't come to be a teacher. Jesus came for the sole purpose of dying on the cross so that you might have eternal life. 
Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be sued for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus was not born in a maternity ward at the hospital. The manger was not a crib. The manger was not a baby bed. It was a feeding trough used to feed animals. Jesus wasn't dressed in a cute little blue suit. He was wrapped in cloth like a corpse. That's where our Savior was born. He who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords stooped to lowliness so that you and I might someday have riches untold. He could have been born in a palace. He could have been born in a modern hospital. God could have waited till now. We have such medical advances today that, that he could have waited until now and Jesus could have been born at Children's Hospital. But God chose a stable in Bethlehem. And God chose lowly shepherds to hear the angels sing. Jesus gave his life in order that you and I might have life. And he died so I could live. He went to the cross so that the penalty for my sin and for your sin would be paid. And just as every lamb in the Old Testament had to die to make atonement for the sin of the people, Jesus Christ died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the Christmas story. That's what we celebrate. No pretty blankets, just wrapped snugly in cloth, a sign a mark from God that Jesus had come to die so that men could live. Some years ago, a cartoon appeared in newspapers. It pictured two farmers in Kentucky standing in a field. Snow is falling softly around them, and one turned to the other one and said, uh, anything exciting happened today? Nah, Nothing exciting, said the other farmer. Oh, I heard there was a baby born over at Tom Lincoln's place today. But nothing exciting ever happens around here. That baby born at Tom Lincoln's place grew up to be Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. I can just imagine. I wonder if there were people in Bethlehem on that night who so long ago may have turned to one another and said, anything happen exciting around here today? Nah, nothing much. I heard some woman gave birth down there to a baby down in a cave just out around town somewhere, but nothing much ever exciting happens around here except that baby. That baby was born to change the world.